We're going to be in the Word of God, and we're going to be taking on still the same thing here with the questions. We're going to be over in Matthew's Gospel, and this particular story is recorded three different places. We are going to bounce around to some of the others, but mostly we're going to stay around here to, to Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel and the thing that he has for us to, to see. We were looking the last couple of weeks in our question series, talking about false assumptions. That if we have false assumptions, it can make answering correctly impossible because we can't quite connect the dots. We can't quite understand because of the false assumptions we have. When we get false assumptions, we often guard them as sacred truth and they will keep us blind and deaf to real answers. We want to make sure that we've identified these things and get them out. Last week, we took a look at what is good enough for God. That sometimes we're always looking at the perfect thing. This person, this thing needs to be perfect over here. This needs to be perfect, or I, I just can't see God behind it. We looked at Ahab's war with Assyria. We looked at assumptions that were made by Assyria about God. We looked at about assumptions made by Ahab that curbed his obedience to the things of God. But here today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 and some questions that are asked of Jesus. The passage that is before we've covered in the recent times and also the question, the type of question that was there we, we covered. So we're going to pick up in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man, man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So this is the table that Matthew would sit at and some of his buddies are tax collectors and they felt perfectly at home coming down and sitting down at this place and Jesus was there and they didn't seem to be bothered the fact that Jesus was there. I'll bet if the Pharisees were around, they probably wouldn't have come and sat at their table. Did you ever have that happen when you were in, when you were in school? Certain tables you were welcome to sit at. Other tables are over here. You don't feel welcome to sit at those. Those are for the cool kids. Those are for the nerdy kids. We don't want to be associated with the nerdy kids. We don't want to do that. When we were in college, we had a cross-country table. And if you're going to sit there, you better be on the team. But every once in a while, we have other people who join. We never, we never said that they, that they couldn't join us. In fact, I remember many a, many a dinner with my uh, good friend of mine. I've mentioned him every once in a while. His name was Elliot. I don't know too many Elliots in my life. He's probably about the only Elliot I've ever really come to know. Uh, very, uh, we were in different denominations. We understood the scriptures in different ways, but he was very knowledgeable in the scriptures, probably the most knowledgeable person as a student that I had up there. We could have some great discussions. Sometimes we would have such ravishing discussions that people would pay money to sit at the table and listen. <laughs> we would go back and forth with things, and but afterwards it was all done. He would say to me, he says, you know, I, I respect you. I don't agree with you all the time, but I respect you because you have Scripture. And I said, well, I feel the same way about you. I said, you have Scripture for what you do. You don't just hang on to things because you're, they're your traditions. And he even told me one time, he said, I understand that there are, he was Lutheran, I understand that there are many problems with some of the things that my church believes, but it's still my church. And so he, uh, he understood that there were some some things that contrasted with the Word of God. But it's good when you can have people around like that. It's good when you have people that you're comfortable with. If you were in a restaurant and you just walked into the restaurant to sit down and, 
and uh, get something to eat and you saw some friends over there and you felt comfortable to going up and to sit with them. But then sometimes you go into a restaurant and you see some people in the restaurant and you say, no. (laughs) And you go to, can we sit on the other side? (laughs) Other side of the restaurant. Don't. (laughs) And don't, don't think you get so spiritual that you get over that. We were... We were at a restaurant one time, my wife and I went into one, and there was somebody who came in ahead of us, and I said, dear Lord, I am not sitting there. <laughs> they, were, they were just one of those super spiritual people, and they're just going to super spiritualize everything, and I, I am, nope, not doing that one. Because some people, they just don't hear, they don't hear anything but, but their, their super spirit stuff, and that wasn't going to be with it. But here, in this particular instance, Jesus comes and sits at the table, and tax collectors come in and they say, hey, we're going to sit here too. Sinners came in and they sat right next to Jesus. And Jesus has no problem with these people coming in and sitting down. And when the Pharisees saw it, the people who came in and sat, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go... And learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the question here comes out, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you want to try and get this into a vernacular that you can understand, say that you were out somewhere and you saw some televangelist, you saw some pastor, you saw some religious person that you knew, Walk into a bar. How many of you that would raise raise a, a question? Why is he or she going into the bar? Why do they want to go into the bar? And you may be, I, I know the kind of people that are in there. Or we'll make it even worse. What if they went into a strip joint? Dear God, there can be no spiritual reason at all for going in. Why in the world is that going on? And we can begin to wonder. Well, you see, they had that same kind of an idea with sitting with tax collectors because tax collectors, of course, these are people who took from the Jews to give it to the Romans. They were generally Jewish people. And so they weren't all that, um, all that well looked upon Matthew. He's, he's one of them. And after Jesus calls them, Jesus saw something in him. So they, they are sitting down together. Other ones came on down to, to sit there and to do the same thing. And so they asked the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, Mark, in his rendition of this, as he writes this down, he has the question phrased this way. How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Luke puts it this way. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, Luke puts it that he asks Jesus directly. But it may be that he asked his disciples and Luke just looks at that. Well, he's asking Jesus and they just answered for him or attempted to answer for him. And then Jesus answered anyway. And since Jesus heard the question, he just kind of bypassed all that. But all three of these are almost identical except for the way that they phrased the question that came. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Have you ever had that question? This question comes from a place of superiority. They are feeling superior to Jesus. How many times have you been asked a question where the person who is asking you the question feels like they are superior to you? Or at least you pick up on that. 
Why are you late every single morning? Why can't you get here at 8 o'clock when everybody else gets here? And that may not even be your boss. They're just somebody else who's, who's there just asking these questions. Why is it that you can't do this? Why is it? And so we ask this question. Sometimes, you know, even husbands and wives can ask these questions like this. We'll ask a question or the other from a place of being superior. We have to be careful of that. That's a wrong attitude. You get that attitude in your question, it's going to mess with the answer. It's going to mess with the person you want an answer from. And really what you're saying is, I already know the right answer if you don't give it to me. See, I already knew the right answer. The right answer is, oh, we didn't realize what I was doing. What am I thinking? I need to get out of here. But that's not what Jesus is going to do. They think they already know the answer. Now, I put this in your outline. There's no blanks here for you. You don't have to fill any of those out there. I want you to make sure you get this. If you truly want to learn, you cannot speak and act like you have nothing to be taught. Can't do it. If you go around and talk and speak and act like you know it all, I've got all the answers. Nobody else can teach me on this, or at least on this topic, I know all the answers. I heard one person, if I get, if I get this right, hopefully I remember it right, they said, if you know everything about a topic, you either know it all or you know nothing. Because usually people, unless you are completely knowledgeable, that you have full knowledge of the thing, if that's not the case, then you are ignorant. Because if you act like you know it all and you don't, you are walking an ignorant lifestyle. You are walking the life of a fool. Most people know... Well, I know up to this point, I know that there's more I can learn in this. I know there's more I can understand, but I'm not there yet. And you always have to leave room for that. So I wrote this. I came up with this question. What is it that reveals the line between knowing I have more to learn and being tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Because you can't go around saying, well, I don't know anything. And just whatever new doctrine comes along, whatever new thing comes along, you just go along with it. So I... I asked that question, I got this answer. Humility reveals the line between knowing I have more to learn and being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Now, pride is the one that, that, that closes it up, but humility will reveal it. If you walk in a, in a humble mentality, you will see the line between knowing it all and having more to learn. You'll see it. You won't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. No, 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 I'm not going after that. That's, that's wrong. If you allow yourself to be ensnared by pride, you will be engulfed in deception. If you allow yourself to be ensnared by pride, you will be engulfed in deception. I want you to think about this. Picture some people that you know that are like the poster child for pride. And just think about their life. How much deception is in their life? How much deception about who they are? How much deception about other people? How much deception about God? How much deception? You put anything in there that you want to. How much deception is in the life of people that are completely or even partially embraced by pride? We've got to make sure that we keep that out. God resists the proud, as we know, but gives grace to the humble. So he goes on. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, apparently they said it 
either close enough or maybe they wanted him to hear it. Have you ever had people who say a question close enough to you and loud enough to make sure that you heard it? Uh-huh. It could have been something along those lines and they wanted him to hear it. That's probably why Luke even said they said it to them because they said it loud enough and he heard it. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if they did this back in there. How many people know about, you know, you're supposed to go out there for physicals? Yeah, how many people do that? No, a couple people do. Yeah, I can't remember last time I was at my doctor. If I, if something is hurting, if I'm bleeding, if something is falling off, generally I will go. But other than that, you know, there's, there's really no, no reason to, to always go out there. But I don't know that they had too many wellness checks back in these days. And so he says, those who are sick, they're the ones that need a physician. If you're not sick, you don't need to go out there and, and find a physician and have them pay them money and have them do all sorts of things with you. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when he says go and learn what this means, the reason he says go, if you ever wonder, why does Jesus say go and learn what this means? The reason is, these people didn't carry around a Bible like you do. Their Bible is down in the temple, in the synagogue. And you've got to unroll it, and then you, you study it. So he's telling them, I want you to go over there, I want you to look this up, and I want you to check it out, and... Learn what this means. Now, if we look, we read this in the King James, New King James, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This comes from Hosea 6 and verse 6. If you have a side margin on that, you will see that. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I looked up a few other translations. The New Living Translation captures more of what this is. If you just pull this one verse out, and you won't quite get the meaning that the context would give you. But the New Living Translation does this a nice job on this. reads like this. I want you to show love and not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. What he is saying is this. I don't desire the practice of religion. I desire you live godly. That's really what he's saying. Lots of people can practice religion. Lots of people can show up at the temple and offer their sacrifices. Lots of people can make the show and, and seem to do what Scripture tells us to do. But he says, no, if you're gonna, if you're gonna live this life, I want you to go out there, I want you to show mercy. Not to, God's not saying, I desire to show mercy. He says, I want you to show mercy, not bring me sacrifices. This is what I really want. I want you to go out there in the world and when you have an opportunity to pass judgment, when you have an opportunity to have that flesh rise up, I want you to walk by your spirit and be merciful. That's what I desire. I want to see my people showing mercy. I want to see my people showing mercy. I want you to go out there and show love. Don't just come here to to the temple and make the sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. That's what he wants. And if you're going to know him, then you're going to live the way he lives. You're going to act the way he acts. You're going to think the way he thinks. 
This is what you'll do. Well, let's keep on going here. Why do you eat with the tax collector? Why do you do this? Why do you come out here and do this? And Jesus says to them, let's read it again. Those who, have, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So here he's, he's talking, look, I want you to live like God lives. God lives among the sinners. God will go into the, the, the place where the sinners are and minister to them. God wants you to do the same thing. Not sit back on the sidelines and pass judgment. Why are you sitting with them? Why are you doing these things? No, go out there and live with them. This is what I want you to do. But then Jesus, he gets into a teaching. He begins to teach them some things. Boy, it just seems like, how in the world do we get there? I put this in your outline for you. As long as we refuse to accept or realize the true purpose of an endeavor, event, or calling, we will ask the wrong questions concerning it. They did not understand the purpose of why Jesus came. They did not understand the purpose of why God sent a Messiah. They did not understand that purpose. Because they didn't understand that purpose, they could not ask a proper question about what he was doing. They could, they received the wrong answers to understand it. They can't ask, they're going to ask the wrong questions concerning it, and they're going to receive the wrong answers to understand it. So they have asked this question. Why is he eating with them? Well, obviously, he can't be Messiah. He doesn't even know that they're sinners. They're asking the wrong questions. They're getting the wrong answers. And they will speak false truths about it. They will go out from here and they will speak false things about Jesus because they asked the wrong questions. They got the wrong understanding. And then they go out and they spread that to others. Don't think that's a new thing. There are people out there, they have asked the wrong questions, they have received the wrong understanding, and they are telling you what they understand and what they know. Don't just accept it. Understand who God is. That's not my God. That's not how my God operates. Until the leaders here receive an understanding, outside of their own wisdom, they will, ne- they will not only never receive the truth on this matter, but many other truths to come. And the same is true for you and I. If I refuse to uh, to receive an understanding outside of my own wisdom, there are a whole lot of truths I'm going to miss out on. Until we discover our own assumptions that have brought about an acceptance of truth of, of untruth into our lives, our ability to grow will be restrained. You will be hindered. Now Moses, I'll give you an example. Moses, he had assumptions about his calling. He had assumptions about his failure, and that he had to give up at the He had to give all these things up at the burning bush. But he had assumptions. He had assumptions about his calling. God is calling me. That means I walk into it now. He had assumptions about his failure. Well, because I failed, I'm obviously not up to the task that I felt God was calling me to. And he walked away from that. For 40 years, he walked away from it. And he would not receive the things that God spoke to him on this. When he's at the burning bush, some of those things, some of those assumptions, he spoke out to God. And God dealt with them until he finally got to the end. Look, go! Get out there and and get moving. And so he finally did. If you keep hanging on to those assumptions, it will hinder you. Don't let that go on. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? Boy, that's a... That's a hard thing for me to understand this question. How did the disciples of John 
ask a question that puts them and the Pharisees in the same boat. What did John think of the Pharisees? Remember when the Pharisees came out to get baptized by John? What did John say? Who warned you <laughs> that you would come out here? Who warned you? He wasn't too, uh, too thrilled about them. He called them names, identified them as deceivers. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples of John and of the Pharisees, well, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do you, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, fast, but your disciples do not fast? In Luke, he puts the question this way. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. All right, so here's where we're trying to get an understanding. I see what's going on. We're fasting. They're fasting, but not you guys. How are you supposed to be spiritual? How are you supposed to be at a level with God that we're not at yet? And yet we're the ones that are fasting. We're the ones that are making prayers. And what they mean by that is public prayers, prayers that can be seen. How is it that this can go on? Have you ever looked at, at people and you wonder, how is that person going on with God? How can they, do they go to church as often as I do? Do they listen to, to uh, teachings as much as I listen to? Do they read the word as much as I read the word? Have they served God as much as I've served God? We look at some of the things that we do and we wonder, how is it that I am doing this and I'm at this level and they're doing this and operating at this level? That's the question that they're really asking. What's going on with this? I see, if you ask the wrong questions with the wrong assumptions, you're going to get a wrong answer to yourself. But Jesus tries to give them an answer here. Let's read it again. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, "We, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? See, we see the benefit of this. You don't. Obviously, if you don't see the benefit because you're not doing it. We do something with great benefit. And you don't. So we should be better. I think we are better. And here's the other part of this. You need to justify yourselves to us. You need to justify why it is that you guys don't fast. We're fasting. We're setting an example for the people. The Pharisees are even fasting. We're doing all this. You're not. Justify yourselves now. How is that right? And Jesus said to them. This answer has puzzled many of people. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? If you are having a party, can you imagine showing up? At, we don't have parties like they have, but they, they had parties that lasted for days. We have receptions that last for hours. They may feel like days, but they're for hours. I've been to some that felt like weeks. They're just a, oh. Too much. Anyway, they're they're there. They're we're there for a few hours. Can you imagine going to a reception? And you know when we do it nowadays, we have a reception. You get a card in the mail, and on that card you get maybe three choices. Do you want to have chicken? Do you want to have steak? Do you want to have fish? What do you want to have? Maybe they have pasta in there. 
Maybe they have something else that they have thrown in there. Maybe they put a vegetarian delight on the menu that you can pick from. I don't know, whatever it is, but they'll put these things down on there and then you examine these and you say, I'm going to have, give me the beef. Show me the beef. That's what I want. And you put your thing down there and then that's all that you got to do. You just show up there. Can you imagine, though, if you showed up at the wedding reception and you sat down to eat and they come over and they bring your selection from your card that you picked and they, you said, I want the beef, and they bring the beef and they put it right down to you. I'm sorry, I'm fasting. Why would you come to a wedding reception if you're fasting? Why would you do that? Maybe some friends of yours invited you out to a restaurant and you're coming out to the restaurant and you go out to the restaurant, you sit on down, hey, let's have a meal, and you look at the menu, and this one orders pasta, and this one orders a salad, and there's one every crop. <laughs> and this one, they go on, and they, they order the, the lobster or whatever it is, and they come to you. What would you like? I'll just have water. I'm fasting. Why would you do that? See, what Jesus is saying is, when the bridegroom is here, this is not a time for fasting. This is the time for celebrating. This is the time for, for, for having a reception. This is a glorious time. And you'll understand his answer even more as he gets into this. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. I don't know if this is exactly intended by Jesus, but he might be saying this. If you knew who was here... You wouldn't be fasting right now. If you knew who was here, if you knew that the bridegroom was here, you wouldn't be fasting. You say you are fasting and praying to get to know God, and yet the Son of God is here. They know the Son of God is here. They're not fasting right now, but he'll be taken away soon, and then they will fast. And then he makes a very bizarre statement which I'm sure everyone has complete understanding of. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment for the batch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wide skins or else the wine skins break, the wine is spilled and the wine skins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wine skins and both are preserved. Now in our day and age with materials, we don't quite have the understanding that they did, but in their day... Every material is natural. I don't know how much they had with cotton, but they had a lot of wool. And what happens when you wash wool? It can shrink. It can shrink. Natural fibers can shrink. Cotton will do the same thing. Natural fibers, if you wash them for the first time, they will shrink, which is why a lot of times people will advertise their clothes as pre-washed so that you know we've already gone through the shrinking process. What they are is, is what they're going to be. And I still take, I have, a, I have a number of wool items that can be washed. We have a lot of wool clothes out now that can, can actually be washed. I have a lot of cotton things, uh, a few cotton. Most of my stuff is, is in the wool area. And so I always make sure when it goes to the washer, it goes to the washer on cold. I, I'm one of those people who, weird people, separates all my stuff. Wash it through cold. And then I take all the certain things and I hang them up and they're drying. I hang them up to dry. 
We don't put them in the dryer. I have, some, I have a cotton sweatshirt. It don't go in the dryer. It don't ever go in the dryer. It takes a whole day for it to dry. But I'll hang that sucker up and I don't care how long you take, I am not putting you in the dryer because I know what will happen if I put it in the dryer. And it's already pretty snug as it is. I don't want it any more snug. So we put it on up there. What he's saying is this. If you take a brand new piece of cloth and you put it on top of one that's already been washed a few times and shrunk, well, these one, this one's not going anywhere. But this one is and it's going to shrink. And it'll take the cloth underneath it and it'll rip it. Because that's, that's what will happen. In the, in the area of woodworking, I've run into this a lot. There are, you have to understand wood whenever you build something out of wood. Because wood has grain and the grain will cause growth in a certain direction. Not all directions, a certain direction. You have to be able to understand what direction is this wood going to grow and how do I fasten it down so that the growth doesn't cause it to break. You can go home and check this out if you want to. How many people have a dresser at home? People have a dresser. On the top of that dresser, it is probably not plywood. On the top of that dresser is probably real wood that is uh, put together in planks. They call it, they're planks. They make these planks. And they uh, glue them together. And you can glue those planks together because in that direction, the wood won't hurt itself. It's going to grow in a way that won't affect those things being done. But if you take that top and you fasten it down surely like with screws and don't let that top have any place where it can move, it will tear the dresser apart because wood will grow and shrink depending upon the humidity in the air and depending upon how cold or how warm something is. So when you are putting this together, you have to understand that when that top comes down on top of the sides, we have to put this together. You have to fasten it in such a way that it allows for the top to grow. This is done in all your furniture. You don't have to think about this. The people who made it did this. Or else they use fake stuff on top and then just put it down with screws. You can do that too. But here he says, no, if you have, a, if you have an old garment, you've got to get old garment and put the patch on top of that and that both have to be old. If you have a new garment, then you have to take a new patch and put it on it. The new garment needs to have a new patch. The old garment needs to have an old patch. And then he goes into the wine. In the area of the wine, if you have new wine, new wine is stronger, and you have a new wine skin, you put them in, it'll be fine. Because as the new wine ages, it ages the the, the wine skin. We don't, ha we have bottles now and you don't need to age bottles. If you're going to put wine into a bottle, you put it into a bottle, the glass isn't affected. But the wine skins were. And so, if you have an old wine skin, it's already been aged to the new wine that was there, you put new wine in there, it's going to burst it because the natures are different. This is what he's teaching you. This is what he's, he's helping them to understand. In the area of prayer and fasting, the purpose of prayer and fasting, is not to get points with God. Some people, they pray and fast because they want points with God. And most of the people here are doing it for show. Jesus had to teach them, don't fast so that everybody can see that you're fasting. Don't pray so that everybody can see that you're praying. You have your reward if you do that. No, what he's teaching them is this, this is the purpose of fasting. It is to change your nature. Because if you take the new wine of the Spirit and you put it into old wineskins, which is your flesh, it will burst. 
you've got to do something to change the nature of your flesh. That's what we call sanctification. You've got, to change, you've got to change the nature of your flesh. It's the same thing with the garments. You can't mix natures. So if you're going to take something spiritual and put it into something flesh, you're going to have a problem. We don't want to do that. We want to change the natures of the thing. And so that's what he's teaching them here. He's trying to change their perspective. Their perspective was wrong. Their perspective was incorrect. They formed a wrong question out of this. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't understand the nature of God. They didn't understand the nature that they needed to have. Their perspective was from themselves and their superiority. Their perspective was from their flesh. Jesus tells them a different perspective. No, you got to get out of that flesh perspective. you got to get out of that place that I am superior, I am better. you got to get into that place where you are humble. you got to get into that place where the Spirit of God has softened you so that you can receive the things of God. You do that, things will change. Things will happen. Now, the question did not come from a pursuit of a greater spiritual understanding. They were not trying to understand things better. They were not trying to get a greater spiritual understanding. The question is accusatory. They're accusing. You've, you've had an accusative question before. Why are you doing it that way? The question is accusatory. It is uninformed and it lacks the purpose of the crusade it implies. It says we're trying to gain knowledge. It says we're trying to understand things, but they're not. They're just trying to accuse Jesus and make Jesus look like he's not what he is. Now, without looking at this question from the right perspective, the answer Jesus gives seems ambiguous. It seems like, what in the world is he trying to answer? What's he trying to do here? And many have made it to mean something that is completely different from what he intends. I was listening to a, to a person, to, uh, <clears throat> uh, I don't know where, where I, was, I got it from, but I was listening to something, and they were talking about the economy. And they were talking about things that were happening in the economy and I was listening to them. And I was real thrilled about this because I don't know, not too many people know this about me. Uh, I don't mention this aspect of my education as much. I talk more about the Bible, the Greek, uh, the time at Ramah. But when I was at the King's College, in order to get a Bachelor of Science degree, you had to have so many, um, so many uh, with, uh, secular credits, credits that weren't Bible credits, credits that were... Uh, in line with the liberal arts degree. And so, in the beginning, I started doing this, and I took the, the psychologies, the sociologies, and the philosophies. Now, philosophy and me did not get along. I'm sorry it comes as a shock to most people. I can't stand philosophy. I sat through one class with uh, a Christian professor. I still remember some of the aspects of that class. I laughed at him. <laughs> some of the things that he did. This, I am not going to learn anything in this class. And I, so I, that's the last philosophy course I took. I took a sociology course, and the professor there, she was good. She was a very good professor, but I can, what is this going to help me with? I could not see any possible benefit from sociology in my life. And so I didn't take any more sociology. I took a psychology course. I actually enjoyed that a little bit, and I could understand a little bit of that, so I took a second psychology course, but I pretty soon decided, you know what, I am not going to get to the liberal arts credits that I need if I continue in this way. And so I sat down with my counselor at the college, and I said, I want to expand, and instead of just being a biblical uh, studies major, I want a business minor. 
And so I figured that had a lot more practical application for what I was doing. So I took a business minor and got into macroeconomics, got into microeconomics. I got his, I loved them. Oh, I had the worst professor in the world. The most boring professor I had at the school, but I loved the book. I would read the book. I would devour the book. I would understand the book. And then I get to class. Oh, man, he was, he was just the most, he was very, very good at his field. In fact, he even worked uh, in Washington in some of the uh, uh, areas there. He was very high up in his field, but he just couldn't teach. But we got into, anyway, we got into this person. This person was talking about stuff, talking about economy, talking about inflation, the things, some of the things were going on, and he made some mention of some things about inflation. I was so happy about this because Greek I have studied since I've gotten out of college. I have never stopped studying Greek. The Bible I have studied since I got out of college. I have studied it since I got out of Rhema. There are many topics I have studied since I left school. Biology. I have still pursued some of the things in biology after I have left school to keep myself abreast on that. But I have not pursued anything in the area of business. I just haven't pursued it. It just didn't interest me. But they were asking this question, and they were making a comparison. And apparently, since I heard them talking about it, I've seen a few places where other people are making the same comparison, so it must be a thing that somebody has started. I don't know where it came from. But they're comparing inflation being a world, a world issue. Uh, what are some of the countries that have high inflation? I, I even forgot some of them. But some of them are like 85%, 17%, different things like this. And they're making inflation a, a world issue. And immediately, in the, on the inside of me, everything from macro and microeconomics started to jump out. That was 40-some years ago. It started to jump up and come inside. I said, no, it cannot be a world issue. Now, here's the things, and I started, this started bubbling up, and I started just uh, <laughs> kind of processing it. Inflation in a country, you may not know this. I knew this from economics. It hasn't changed. Economics is still the same thing. Inflation is caused by too much money, Chasing too little goods. Real simple way to put it. That is inflation. You got too much money chasing too few goods. There's two ways to fix that. One, cut down on the money. Two, increase the goods. That's really about all you can do. There is nothing more that you can do in the area of inflation. You either cut down on the money or you increase goods. Now, if you've got a situation where you have too much money and we are reducing the goods, guess what? Now, inflation really picks up. Now, how many people were alive back in the Jimmy Carter days? A couple people? All right, Jimmy Carter days, that was the last time we really saw inflation in this country that I can remember. Up uh, Since then, inflation has been there. You know, it's been, what, 2 3 4%, something, and it just kind of grows a little bit. But we go to the store. How many, how many years have you gone to the store and the box of cereal has been the same price? Campbell's Soups has been the same price. You go into the grocery store, Tasty Cakes, same price. But all of a sudden, Tasty Cakes cost twice as much. All of a sudden, the milk has gone up and to noticeably, and we're seeing a, a factor that's going on. So what is it that causes these things? Well, the, the one thing, if you remember the Jimmy Carter era, then you remember the Reagan era. When Reagan first took over the, the office, he did some things to fix this, and it was painful. Because what he had to do, one of the things he had to do was reduce the money supply. That hurt. That hurt a lot of people. But he had to do it. And he reduced the money supply. He did things to get the goods and, and products up. And we saw inflation finally come down. It took a little while. 
but we saw inflation come down, and it stayed down for a long time. We had things rolling around there pretty good. We changed president, Republican, Democrat. How many of y'all know? It didn't really seem to matter too much. Inflation stayed around the same area. It didn't really grow. Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing this. So is there a world... Become, if you accept the premise that some people want to tell you, inflation is a world issue, then no longer are the people responsible responsible. They're not responsible anymore because they haven't done anything. Then this is what you have to understand. There are some things that are world products. Fuel is a world product. It has an impact around the world because the Saudis produce it, the Russians produce it, Venezuela used to produce it. I don't know how much they're doing anymore. We produced it. And we were doing pretty good in this, and the oil price of oil came down pretty far. And so we were seeing, uh, a couple of years ago, $1.89, $2 prices for, for the gasoline. And then it started going up. Well, it's not a surprise why it went up. And though he wants to deny it now, Joe declared war on oil, and he did that right out of the gate, taking the, the place, cut down the, on the, the pipeline. He cut down on production. He cut down on leases. They're trying to say that we didn't do this, but they did. We went from one of, I've heard some people say we were the top. We were the number one uh, producer of oil in the world. But we went either from number one, to we were somewhere in the top three. It was us, Russia, and the Saudis. We dropped out of that three. Now, on a world scale, how much does it affect the world if one of the top three oil-producing nations, we were exporting, we were not importing, we were exporting oil, when one of the top three cuts down and now wants to buy off of the others, what's that going to have an effect on? That's going to have a global effect. But it was a global effect that was caused by people in leadership who say, we're not going to produce this anymore, we're not going to do this anymore. And they cut that down. And now we've got people from our government that are going over and begging the Saudis to produce more oil. I don't understand that. We have it here. We could pay our own people to do it and not have to buy it overseas. But that's the idea a global... Market. Food has become a global commodity. You have different places that have done that. I, I think, um, uh, what is the uh, Ukraine? I was surprised at how high they are up on the exporter of wheat, but they're involved in a war that's going to cut that back. So that has a, uh, an effect. Technology is a global commodity. It is produced all over the world. China produces this, Japan produces this, uh, mines produce these parts. So these, these are a, a, a global commodity. And they will have a global effect on things. But here in this country, inflation, the number one effect of inflation is your money supply and your products. Right here, we can't control what the Saudis are going to do for oil, what they're going to charge for it. We can't control that. We can produce our own and have that not be in effect. But if we keep producing, printing money, which is what they've done, uh, how many years now? You can't just print a trillion dollars worth of money and it not have an effect. The more the government prints money to satisfy its debt, the more the money in your pocket goes down. Now, inflation, I don't want to make this a whole, you know, business thing. <laughs> but uh, you remember when Venezuela had their great inflation? You know, they, I mean, they went, they were carrying money around in wheelbarrows, I think, and and uh, you had to get paid every day because if you got paid tomorrow, it wasn't worth as much as it was today. It was terrible. I think they were in the 200% range. It was, it was some kind of crazy number on that. 
but it was it was completely in house. It was Venezuela. Their inflation didn't affect us. We didn't have inflation because Venezuela had inflation. So understand there are factors that will affect your country, and there are factors that your country can do to keep your uh, your currency up. Inflation is affected more by your country's currency than anything going on in the world. As your country's currency becomes devalued, then inflation goes up in your country. As your country doesn't produce the goods that it needs, inflation goes up because your goods and services will cost more. It is in-country. So don't just buy into all these things that some of these politicians want to throw out there. Well, it's not our fault. It's a global. No, it's not a global thing. There are things that you need to do. If you accept that assumption, then you accept that answer. It's the same thing in the realm of the spirit. If you will accept some people's assumptions, then you will accept their answers. And their answers may not be filled with light. They may be filled with darkness and it's keeping you on a wrong path. It's important that you get off that. So you got to stay humble before God. God, I need you to teach me. What is it that I'm holding on to that is wrong? I have to constantly come before God with this. God, I, I know I've spent a lot of time studying your word, but I'm, I'm sure I've got some things in there that, that need to be straightened out. Teach me. Show me what it is in your word. I want to know what it is that we, that we need to do. What we need to, to come to. So when you get into fasting, what you are looking to do here is to change your nature. You want to change your nature. If I can get my flesh to be the nature of the spirit that's being poured into me, then when that spirit is poured into me, I'm not, I don't burst. I don't burst. And when you go around and act like the spirit that is on the inside of you, your life was, is going to change. Remember in Mark 11, 23 and 24, when it says, uses the word doubt, you can go look that up later on. When it uses the word doubt, it's passive because in your members is a passive doubt that fasting will remove. Now, we spent time on this before showing you where this is in the, from uh, Jesus' teaching that uh, why could we not cast a demon out? Because of your unbelief. This is the type of unbelief that you need to pull out of yourself and you can. But the purpose of fasting is to change the nature of your flesh. You've got to change that flesh nature of yours so that it becomes spiritual. Every time that you practice, every time that you act like the kingdom of darkness, you are reinforcing the wrong things on the inside of you. you reinforce, every time that you use language that you shouldn't lose, it's not sending you to hell. What it's doing is, is getting your nature not renewed on the things of the Spirit. Every time that you don't act patiently and you have let your flesh rise up on the inside of you. Why aren't you ready yet? Why aren't we going? Why aren't we doing? And you let your flesh rise up and you start, you are accommodating the nature of the enemy. You're accommodating the wrong nature on the inside of you. You are going to be withheld from understanding the things of the spirit. You're not going to, the natures are wrong. You're walking according to the wrong nature. Don't walk according to that nature. Every time that you, I'll, I'll give you this way. How many, um, how many people have no problem going into the theater and sitting down and watching a movie? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you know y'all sinners. <laughs> not trying to say that, but going a nice movie, a good wholesome movie, not a compromising movie, just going on in and you sit on down there and you sit on the chair and you watch that movie hour and a half, right? Hour and three quarters, maybe even two hours. And you come out of there. 
And you say, oh, that was a good movie. Oh, I like that movie. Oh, that was a nice movie. I enjoyed that movie. You might be talking about it. The last movie we went to see, we went to see the new Maverick movie. That was a good movie. I liked that movie. I'd go see that movie again. I'm not the biggest Tom Cruise fan, but as an actor, whew, man, he is good. <laughs> so my wife and I, we went and we sat there and we watched it, and we had no trouble with that. But now that's your, that's your flesh. That doesn't feed your spirit, does it? It's a good movie. It doesn't feed your spirit. It feeds your flesh. We can sit down there and we can be in there for an hour and a half. If you were to sit down and have a meal, how many of you are done your meal in five minutes? Some of us take our, you take your time you, and you have no trouble taking your time and enjoying the, enjoying the meal. But you see, when you get into things spiritual and you try and sit down and read your Bible, how many are done in five minutes? When you want to get down on your knees and pray to God and talk with God, and after, uh, you think, man, I've been down here an hour. I've been on my knees praying for an hour. I know. Four minutes. <laughs> oh, four minutes. That's it. When you sit and you listen to the Word of God being taught, how many of you, you you're listening to the thing being taught? You listen to the YouTube. We got YouTube stuff. And we got, you know, podcasts. And we all got tons of stuff. And you, you, after 15 minutes, 20 minutes, starting to doze off. But you see, you can sit and watch the movie for all kinds of time. But why? Because your flesh is developed, your spirit's not. Now, God t- taught me things about this before. He said, Stephen, I'm not going to tell you how long I run, but I'll go out in the morning and I'll run for a while. You think about how long it is, it's probably longer than that. But I mean, I run for a long time. Most people, I tell some people, I run for this long. What? But you see, I built myself up to that. You don't get out there and do that right off the bat. If any of you did, I'd, I'd hit you. <laughs> you could kill yourself if you go out there and do it. But I'm used to it. I can go out every day and run for this amount of time. And not if I get done, I say, well, that was good. You know, I don't feel exhausted. I don't feel tired. I can go on. I usually do it in the morning, and then I go on for the rest of the day and, uh, and go out and, about and do these things. My, my endurance has been built up. You've got to build your endurance up for the things of the Word. You've got to endure, build your endurance up for the things of prayer. You've got to... En- Build your endurance up for listening and hearing the word. If you don't build your endurance up, if you don't do things to try and push that level out, you're not going to change your nature. Your nature is always going to be flesh-dominated. If we walk flesh-dominated, then when I hear the voice of the Spirit, I'm not going to recognize Him. He's not going to be able to lead me into things that I want Him to lead me because I'm too used to hearing my flesh. Don't be doing that. Build yourself up. Get yourself ready. Now, I I did that with the word. When I was going down to Raymond, we learned how to, how to do things. I got into a three or four hour service and I felt like I don't want to leave. I wanted more. I could listen to three, four, five hours of word back to back and still be ready for more. Sometimes I'd be sitting there listening to it, writing things down, writing things, nothing else in, in my, my field of vision. Just listening to the word and writing things down and learning and learning. And le- I built my endurance up of that. You don't build your endurance up right away. If you're going to play the piano, you've got to build your endurance up. If you're going to play the trumpet, you've got to build your endurance up. Whatever it is that you do in life, you've got to build your endurance up to get used to it. And you can build your endurance up for this. You've got to change your flesh, nature. You've got to change it to become something more spiritual. We've got to get both to match. This is why some Christians are deceived into just, justifying a temptation to disobey the word. They think 
Well, I feel like God is telling me to do this. Yeah, but his word says this. Yeah, but I feel like God is telling me that I can do this. I feel like it's telling me it's okay. Because you can't tell the difference between a flesh leading and a spirit leading because you keep giving in to your flesh. You got to stand up to that flesh every now and then. Understanding this principle and flowing with it. You got to flow with it. You got to move with it. It will keep you from false doctrine. It'll keep you from false spirits. It'll keep you from false ideas and false principles. It'll keep you from them. But you've got to walk in it. You've got to go after it. You've got to pursue it. Every single day, you go out there. I'm building my endurance. I'm praying. If the most you can do right now is five minutes, then pray five minutes and look for ten minutes next week. Maybe 15 minutes the next week. After that. Don't get under condemnation. I can only pray for five minutes. Pray for the five minutes. Give it your intense five minutes. And then look to build that up. Sit there in the, in the Word of God and study the Word of God. Read the Word of God. And if the most you can do is the chapter that we're doing every day, then great. But once you start to build that up and are able to do more, go dip in, in the Old Testament. Read some of those ones over there. Build your endurance up. You'll get yourself to where you desire it. You're hungry for it. If we preach patience but lose ourselves, we lose it ourselves if we're tired or hungry. That's my flesh taking over. That's showing you You've got this much spiritual threshold. As soon as you get hungry, as soon as you get tired, as soon as you get whatever, then what you're doing is is out the window. Don't be doing it. We know that God wants us to walk in patience. We know that's the fruit of the Spirit. i got to stay in that area. If I preach selflessness, but then when things don't go my way, I become selfish. That's not good. When I operate in pride, selfishness, etc., I take on Satan's nature. When you operate in pride, you bring that into yourself. When you bring on selfishness, when you bring in impatience, when you bring in these other characteristics, you are taking on the nature of Satan. You're not changing your flesh nature that way. But when you take on the nature of God and you walk in it, you will change your flesh nature. I've got to operate in love, patience, kindness. You will get most familiar with whatever you associate with. If you associate with flesh, you will get most familiar with flesh. If you associate with spirit, you will get more familiar with spirit. The more that you associate, the more it'll hurt you. We, God's word doesn't say don't cuss, don't fornicate, don't live loose. He doesn't speak all these things to you because in not doing them, there's a, there's a benefit. Well, you know, you get more points from me if you stay out of doing this. Glad that you didn't murder anybody today. That's really, really great. And no, it, he doesn't want you to take on the nature of the enemy. Don't do it. If you keep walking away from the nature of the enemy, your nature changes. And then when something comes in that is contrary to the nature that you're walking in, you say, hold on a minute. The Word of God says, test the spirits. This one does not seem to go with what's on the inside of me. Hold on a minute. The Word of God says, check the doctrine. Check the teaching. Don't go after false teaching. Don't go after false teachers. Something on the inside. It's not right. It's not right. Something is wrong here. This is what will help you. And the more that you operate in the nature of God, the more questions will come up on the inside of you that are born of that nature. And you'll get God's attention. And you say, God, 
I understand this from your word. How can I have this in my life? How can I help so-and-so get this in their life? But you see, I'm asking questions from a different nature. These two questions we have in there, they ask them from the wrong nature. They ask them from the wrong place. They ask them from a place of superiority. They ask them from a place of being accusative. But you don't have to do that. It's not the way that you got to work. Walk in the nature of God. The things that come up on the inside of you will be different. There's a whole lot of Christians. What we do is we suppress the nature of the flesh. God does not want you to suppress the nature of the flesh. He wants you to change it. Well, you know, I was there and they took everything in me not to say something. <laughs> no. Get it so that your nature is changed. My God didn't give me anything to say. So I didn't say it. I didn't have anything in my spirit to say. So I had to say anything. See, I operate in a different nature. When you got that flesh nature coming up and you want to speak up and you want to say things and you want to, <clears throat> I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. You're operating on the wrong nature. You're operating on the wrong kind of flesh. And you'll reinforce the wrong things in your life. But change it. You can change it. Would you all stand up with me? Ask our rushers to come up. This is our communion Sunday.